I once got cussed out at the happiest place on earth. It's uh, one of those moments that I'll never forget. We were in Disney World with my whole family, and um, the, my brother has several kids, and my sisters have kids, and so they were all running around doing their thing, and Abel was two at the time. Cohen wasn't yet born, so we kind of thought Abel maybe needed a break. And so Whitney and I and my dad and my mom were, were sitting there, and I, if I describe the area to you, some of y'all would be like, oh, I know exactly where that is in the park. We go there every year. We're there on Tuesday at 3 p.m. Like, I don't remember where it was, but it was this place in the park, and um, there was like a grassy area for Abel and his cousins to run around and get some energy out. And then right next to the grassy area, there was a, a railing because on the other side of the railing was a body of water. It was this small little creek thing. I'm sure there was a purpose and it was in a movie or something, but whatever. And um, so Abel was standing right next to the railing of the creek. And we're sitting in the grass, not 15 feet away, and watching Abel. You know, he's two, and he's still trying to figure out things, and he starts sticking his leg through the railings, through the posts of the railings. And I'm just watching him, you know, kind of looking around, talking to Whitney, maybe, maybe not looking at my phone. And um, all of a sudden, from the other side of the creek, I hear this lovely voice of a very kind and gentle lady who I'm sure is happy all the time. And um, she says, hey, who's watching that kid? <clears throat> and so me, my wife, my dad, my mom, all four look up and uh, say, we are. And, and she, she goes, do you see what he's doing? And I was like, no, what's he doing? She didn't think that was funny. And um, she said, he's sticking his foot through the railing. He's going to fall in. And I have to tell you, if we weren't screaming across a creek at each other, I would have taken the time to explain to her that I'm pretty sure Disney World, the place designed for kids, thought through the railings of the bridges to make sure that kids couldn't sneak through them and fall into the three-inch deep creek that was below them. But regardless, I, it was this moment where I didn't have a whole lot of clarity. And I said, what would I do if you weren't here today? She didn't think that was funny either. And she said some things that I can't quite say because well, we're in church and y'all would be upset. So, um, and she then said, I'm glad somebody was worried about your kid's safety. And I was like, have a nice day. And I, I don't ever know that lady. She may someday watch this video. And she probably is at her church today telling you all about the time this parent let their kid play in the dangerous railing at Disney World. But it's the funniest thing because it happens to me, particularly me, a lot that people feel the need to criticize my parenting. Right? Like, I'm, I don't know how many of y'all are, are in the stage of life that we're in, but we've got, we've got a two-year-old and a four-year-old now, and there's this rule. I need to tell you all this. There's this rule that your kid can't wear a winter coat in the car, in their car seat. Okay, here's the thing. A, I know some of y'all are going to say, I don't know how we survived when I was a kid. We didn't have any rules, and we all lived. Like, some of y'all need your head checked, and that's probably the reason for your car seats. But, nope, okay, that wasn't funny. Cool. <laughs> but... There's rules, right? And you have to follow the rules or you get in trouble and like CPS comes and gets you. There's all these things. So what happens is when you get your kid out of the car seat at Kroger and it's cold outside, it would take you just as long to put the winter coat on your kid because I don't know if you've ever tried to put a winter coat on a four-year-old. It's not that fun. It would take you just as long to do that as it would to just grab them and run into the store. So all of the nice, kind ladies who look at us and say, 
I don't know why those boys don't have coats on. I kind of want them to take my kid home for a little bit. <laughs> you try to put his coat on. But then it happens like all the time. There was this one time we were at, at another store in town walking around. Cohen was about six months old and uh, was trying to take a nap. And you know that, that feeling when your baby is tired and they're kind of trying to take a nap and they're kind of fighting it. So I'm just walking him through the store. And one of the ways to get Cohen to fall asleep was just to pat him on the back kind of hard, right? Like I'm not going to hurt him, but it was reassuring to him. It was comforting to him. And so I've got it to the point where he's like almost asleep, right? He's, he's calming down. He's taking deep breaths, and I'm patting, patting, patting him. And this lady, God bless her soul, comes up to us from nowhere and sticks her face about this close to Cohen's and goes, is your daddy patting you too hard? And Cohen woke all the way back up. That's why I went to jail once for assaulting an older lady. But it happens all the time that there are parenting experts everywhere you go. And what makes it even more difficult is not only are there parenting experts, but there's these things that I like to call super moms. And they're the moms who have never posted a bad word about their kid online, never said a bad word in public about their kid online. Their kid makes a new craft every day that they made after they've made bread from scratch for the whole family. And, and they're raising chickens outside to make sure their kids have the freshest eggs and like all these kinds of parents, right? And I'm like, my kids ate frozen pizza and all of us survived. You know, like, like there's, there's two kinds of parents and there's the super mom and then there's me, you know, and like, and it's so awful because there's so much pressure from those kinds of people. Some of you, if you're past the parenting stage of life or you're a grandparent and you don't, you don't quite know this, you don't know that I'm of the opinion in, in what I've studied and what I've read that there may not be more pressure on parents than there is right now. And here's the crazy part about that, right? Like a hundred years ago, the pressure on parents was keep your kid alive to 18. Like, make sure they're a somewhat functioning member of society. But I would tell you, and you can survey the other parents in the room that they would probably feel this too, that the hardest thing about being a parent might be that there is this unwritten expectation from other parents in other places that if your kid doesn't get accepted into least, at least five Ivy League schools, and if he doesn't letter in at least five different sports in the time that he's a middle schooler, and he doesn't have three pieces of legislation named after him in at least two different houses of Congress because he's made such an impact on the world, then you as a parent have failed. And I know that sounds ridiculous because it is but it's just the, the, in 2018 in the United States of America, it's the way parenting is going right now. And there's this tremendous amount of pressure to make sure that your kid performs. And this unwritten rule that says if your kid isn't exceptional, then you didn't do it right. And so over the next couple of weeks, um, we're talking about this series, This Is Us, and, and it's a series, the title is based off of a TV show um, about a family. And I have to tell you this, I tried to watch the show, it's a really interesting concept for a show, but I don't like to be told what to do, and it's clear that the writers of this show want you to cry at least once every three minutes, and I wasn't going to cry during a TV show at least not one not about sports, and I wasn't going to watch a TV show that wanted me to cry the whole time, so I've not watched very much of it. I just wanted to steal the title so that you all knew what we were talking about. But the story of This Is Us is a story that, that kind of shows the same story that TV shows about families have shown for a long time. And what they reveal 
is that being a part of a family is difficult. The being a part of, of a group of people who live in the same house, who share the same blood, being a part of even an extended family who just shares the same last name is incredibly difficult. And so over the next couple of weeks together, we're going to talk about, about a lot of different aspects of family, including a couple of weeks we're going to talk about parenting, and we're going to talk about marriage, and we're going to talk about the family. And I'm excited to share with you, I will tell you, Savannah kind of tricked you, there is a week where we're talking about crock pots. So um, apparently in the show, spoiler alert, some guy dies from a crockpot. I don't know if he like gets stuffed in it or what. That's, I, whatever. But um, no, apparently that's not what happens. So, but we're going to talk over the next couple weeks about these dynamics of family. And, and I thought it was important to start today with talking about parenting. Because of all the messes of family and all of the things that happen, perhaps the most difficult mess to wade through is the mess of parenting. And it's hard because you want to do the right thing. You want to be a good parent. You want to do everything you're supposed to do. But then on top of it, you see the other people. And you see the other kids. And you see the other comparisons. And you see all of these opportunities. And you think, I don't, maybe we're just not doing this right. Right? And that every moment that your kid cries, and I mean a legitimate cry, not like your kid cries because you won't give them any more chicken nuggets, happens a lot at the Stroop house, but every moment that your kid is sad and upset, every moment things don't go their way, there's this temptation to sweep in and rescue, right? Because like the thought of someone else being mean to your child, the thought of somebody hurting your kid is so difficult to bear. And there are times where you think, you know what, I should just give my kid everything they want. If I, just, if I just give them what they're asking for, if I just give them everything I didn't have, if I just give them every opportunity, if I just bend over backwards to make sure everything is just right and just perfect for them, then everything will be okay. But what happens is, is when we do that, we're ruining our kids. And I am of the opinion that a lot of the problems that happen in the modern society happen because kids were raised spoiled. And kids are raised never having to know sadness. Kids are raised never having to know rejection or heartache or, or any of those things. And so what happens is that we've spoiled our kids because of the pressure to spoil our kids. And inevitably, we'll end up disappointed in who our kids become. You see, here, here's the thing. Here's the secret you need to know. Is that the job of a parent is not to pursue your child's happiness. It is to shape them towards holiness. Now, I hesitated to use the word holiness because that sounds like a little bit of a like, churchy word and like I don't want you to think that your child needs to be wearing a robe and walking through the house saying, Mother, to err is human, but to forgive is divine. Like, like that's not what we're looking for here. I don't need your child to become a priest or anything like that. But, but what we're talking about is your job is not to prepare, not to, to shape your kids' happiness, but to shape them towards holiness. Your job is to make them see Jesus. Your job is to treat them and to train them to grow up to be like Jesus. I'm convinced that one of the major problems with a lot of kids in modern society is that they're raised to believe the world revolves around them, right? They were raised to think that they're special. They were raised to think that they're unique, and all of these things are fine and good, but what happens is kids grow up thinking the world revolves around them because for 18 years, their parents' world revolved only around them, 
and then they get into what we like to call the real world, and they figure out very quickly that no one else's world revolves around them. And this is a dangerous thing that happens to to our kids is that they expect things to go their way because they always have. But I saw this quote this week, and I can't attribute it to who it's actually from because I saw it several different places, but I love it because it says it's not your job to prepare the path for the child. It's your job to prepare your child for the path. It's not your job to say, look out world, here he comes, make sure everything goes his way. It's your job to say, look out buddy, here comes the world. Things won't always go your way. Now here's the thing, like I, I can sense in some of you that you're looking at me and you're going, <laughs> your kids are four and two. What do you know about parenting? And I say, Nothing. But then I tell you this, I tell you that my wife and I were raised by four really good parents, and that for years I have studied what this Bible tells us about parenting, and I have observed parents in every aspect of the spectrum of how they parent, and I can tell you that I'm fairly confident in what I can tell you today, that it probably somewhat at least maybe a little bit applies to you. And that I think raising every kid is different because different kids are in different stages of life and different personalities. But I can tell you this, that I'm confident that what I tell you confidently is that God's design for your kids is for them to grow up pursuing him. And that your job as a parent is not to pursue their happiness, it is to shape them towards holiness. Your job as a parent is to teach your kids about expectations and boundaries. Your job as a parent is to show your kids the way to live. Your job as a parent isn't to live through them vicariously. It's not to fulfill all of your dreams through them. It's not to make all of their dreams come true. Your job is to teach them about expectations and boundaries. Your job is to point them to how to live like Jesus. And so what happens is that When you teach them about expectations and boundaries, the coach of their team doesn't have to teach them those things. When you teach them about expectations and boundaries, the teachers at their school don't have to spend time with your child teaching them how normal society works because you've already taught them that in life there are expectations and boundaries to follow. And I'll tell you that it's difficult. I'll tell you that it's hard and that it's demanding, and that less people do this now than ever before. But I can tell you that as people who follow Jesus, this is our job. If you were to ask me how I want my sons to be described, I would tell you that when they grow up, I want the opposite of this statement to be true. This statement that we're about to read to you comes in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. It's towards the beginning of your Bible. It's in the Old Testament But it's one of my favorite stories about parenting. We've actually talked about it before. Several years ago, we talked about this story. And it's the story of a man named Eli and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Eli is a priest. Eli is a a pillar of the community. He's a leader in his area. He he runs the temple where, where a lot of things happen. This is an important guy. But here's my greatest fear in parenting is that my sons would be described like Eli's are in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, where it says, Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. So if my kids grow up thinking I'm mean, if my kids grow up thinking his parents are too strict, I'm fine with it. 
because I won't have them described as scoundrels who had no regard for the Lord. You see, I think Eli, in my opinion, takes the opposite approach to parenting. Eli has these two boys, Hophni and Phinehas, and I'm of the opinion that Eli's ultimate goal was to be his kid's friend. He wanted to be well-liked. He wanted to be popular. He wanted his kids to think he was cool. Whatever it was for Eli, I'm convinced that Eli takes the opposite approach, where his only goal isn't for his kids to follow after God. His goal was for his kids to think he was nice. And I'm convinced that there is another way. I actually have done a lot of research on parenting. I read a lot of books. People tease me because we read a lot and talk a lot about parenting. We're trying to be intentional about who we are as a parent, drawing from the wisdom of our parents and our grandparents, drawing from the wisdom of people we know, and drawing from, from books and, and other, other trustworthy sources about how to be a good parent and how to raise your kids to follow Jesus. One of the things that I've discovered is that there are, they, the people teach that there are three phases of parenting before your child turns 18. And the first phase of parenting is discipline, right? Some of you are like, yeah, discipline, that's what we need more of in this world. And I'm not going to tell you about your discipline philosophy today. It's not why we're here. You do you and we'll figure it out, all right? But the first phase of parenting is discipline, and it comes until about age five or six, Discipline is the stage that the Stroops are in right now, which is why if you ever come to our house, you hear the word no about 42,336 times a day, right? No, you can't touch that. No, you can't do that. No, you can't wear that. No, you can't eat that. Like, it's all the time. But this is an important part of parenting. If you were there or you are there, you know that you say the word no a lot. But it's important because through age five, age six, we're setting boundaries and establishing precedents. Almost probably once a month, Abel will look at us and he'll say, you're not talking very nice right now. To which I always respond, we'll keep this up and we'll see how not nice daddy can really talk. But it's a hard thing because because I want my kids to like me, but more than that, I want my kids to grow up knowing about life and understanding how to follow Jesus. When we talk about discipline in the Bible, inevitably somebody will say, yep, the Bible says, spare the rod, spoil the child. That's what the Bible says. Well, I'm going to tell you, it's not actually what the Bible says. Because what happens is, like, people will pull out the wooden spoon, which is what I got spanked with as a kid, and they'll say, spare the rod, spoil the child, and just beat the ever-living tar out of a kid. Not that that happened to me ever, but... um, but I want you to understand that here's what the Proverbs says about the rod, right? It says, whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. And then it also says a couple chapters later that a rod and reprimand impart wisdom, but a child left undisciplined disgraces his mother. So here's the thing that I, that I want you to know. And this, this is important. I'm not condoning or condemning any sort of discipline in your household. You do you. But to read these verses as a command to spank the ever-loving life out of your kids is something you need to think about. I'm not saying don't spank. I'm not saying do spank. What I am saying is that there is very solid evidence that what these verses are talking about is not the rod that is the switch from out back or the belt from around your waist. What this is talking about is a metaphorical version of the rod. Most of you all are familiar with what it's like to show animals at a fair. Right? And I, I, I enjoy watching it because 
I think all your animals taste good. But what happens is, um, if you watch someone show an animal, what they'll do is they'll have what's called, I learned this term, they'll have a show stick. And the goal of the show stick is to keep the animal going in the direction the animal's supposed to go. And they'll have the bridle or whatever they hold, the, they hold the, the animal with, and they'll move it from place to place. And I've seen enough animal shows to know that the, the, the show stick doesn't always do the job. That there are times when you try as hard as you can, but your goal with the show stick is to guide and lead the animal where you need it to go. Because you're teaching it about boundaries and you're teaching it about how to do things. But you know as well as I know that if you just wail off and start beating the animal with it, they're not going to respond. But it's more about using the rod as a way to guide and direct. There are times where you need to be more firm. There are times when you need to make serious points about serious things. But sometimes discipline doesn't look like you might think it does. In fact, I, I want to share with you, there's a book out called Parenting by the Book. It's an old school book, but it's still really good. And when he wrote about the rod, here's the three things that he had to say about the metaphorical rod. He says that rod-like discipline is consistent and true. And this is important because it's hard, um, parents, uh, kids of different ages, it's hard from parents, you know, days when we're tired, days when we're in a good mood, days when we're in a bad mood. But the importance about rod-like discipline is that it's consistent and true. The second thing you need to know is that it emanates from a legitimate authority. We have a rule in our house that we don't say, because I said so, and it's because we believe in the importance of an eminent, emanating from a legitimate authority, that there's a reason we're punishing you, there's a reason we're disciplining you, and here's why you can't let this happen again, here's why you can't do this again. The third thing about rod-like discipline is that it establishes boundaries and compels action to change. You see, a rod-like discipline is about guiding and directing. And there are times where you say, yes, it hurt to be spanked. Yes, it hurt to have this time out. Yes, it hurt to be dealt with in this way. But the reason it hurts is because in real life, there will be consequences that will hurt. And we're trying to show you how the path goes. And this is the life of the disciplining phase, is that there are times when, when you have to discipline and you have to be firm, and it's hard. But I think if you read the story of Hophni and Phinehas from 1 Samuel chapter 2, you discover that Eli never bothered with the discipline phase. That Eli didn't want to go through the discipline phase. Maybe he chose not to. Maybe he just wasn't able to. Maybe there's other things happening that we don't really know about. But it's clear from the story of Hophni and Phinehas that they don't go through the discipline phase. However, what's interesting is at the same time in 1 Samuel chapter 2, there's another story running right next to it. And the other story running right next to it is the story of a boy named Samuel. And Samuel was growing up in the temple under Eli, but he wasn't Eli's son. Samuel was the son of Hannah who gave him up at birth because she promised God that if he would bless her with a son, she would give him to God. And she literally gives him to God to live in the temple. But here's the story of Samuel, that Samuel, as a boy, was ministering before the Lord wearing a linen ephod. So at the meantime, here's Hophni and Phinehas who are scoundrels. Here's Hophni and Phinehas who have no regard for the Lord. And then in the same building, in the same household, is Samuel. And Samuel's life is completely different. Samuel was focused on, that, on God, his creator, from, a, from the get-go. He was focused on, on following after him. He was focused on, on, on who God was and who God wanted him to be. 
There's a difference in the two. I want to tell you this. I need to give you a, a disclaimer, and then I want to tell you something about what happens next. The first disclaimer, and I meant to say this earlier, but I always like to make this clear. If you are a parent who has the story of a child who rebelled, I want you to know that I believe there are parents who did everything right down to the letter by the book, and their kids still chose a different path. And I want you to know that my heart hurts for you, and I believe that there is a gracious and loving God who still has a door open for that child to return. So I don't want you to feel like this is a condemnation of you and all of your failings. I want you to know that there are people who were raised by people who did a good job but still turned away. The second thing I want, to know, I want you to know is that even if you feel like, man, we missed out on the discipline phase, we were too nice, we, we didn't want to handle the crying, we, we didn't want to deal with it, I want you to know that there's a chance for recovery. You see, after the discipline phase comes the training phase. And the training phase takes place kind of elementary school, early middle school is kind of where that transitions, where your kids are still by your side, your kids are still with you most of the time, but they go to school and they do things, and so there's opportunities there for you to train them, for you to work through them, for you to see out moments and, and, and lifetimes of opportunities in, in the training phase that as you release them and as you let them go, they make decisions and they make choices, but at this age, the consequences are still minimal. And so they come home and you use this moment in these training phases to talk about the consequences of what they're dealing with. And you say, you got a bad grade because you didn't do your homework. You don't like this feeling, do you? You say, you know what? Coach isn't playing you on the team right now. How do you think we could fix that? How do you think we could work to, to do a better job to do what coach has expected us to do? That person, that friend hurt your feelings. Do you think about how that felt next time you have a friend who's with you and you don't want to play what they want to play? And this is, this is a hard road to walk down, but it's important to walk down this road because when you're training your kid to deal with consequences, when you're training your kid to make those decisions, eventually you'll see the fruit of it. I had to laugh a couple weeks ago. Um, I was in Abel's room with him, and Abel, sometimes in his room, plays this game I've told you about called Dump Everything Out. Like all the toys, all the things. So I'm in his room and we can't move on to what he wants to do next until he cleans his room. And he keeps saying, Daddy, you won't help me. I said, I'm not going to help you. I didn't make the mess. You did. And so we're dealing with the consequence of, of this little consequence of making the mess and having to clean the room. And finally he got to the point, and this is where I just started dying laughing because I think I said this once too. He stomped his foot and he looked at me and he said, when I have a kid, Daddy, I'm not making him clean his room. And I said, you know what's funny is I said that to my dad once, and then I saw how messy you were, and you have to clean your own room. <laughs> like, it's this crazy thing where, where we started dealing with the consequences of the choices that we've made. I want to recommend for some of you, if you're a reader, I will buy this book for you if you ask, because some of you and some of you listening online who are my Facebook friends need to hear it more than anything. It's the book called The Gift of Failure. And it's all about the supermom generation and how these kids have never known a bad grade. They've never known not being on the team because when anything happens, mom rushes to the principal's office. Mom rushes to the coach's phone. Mom makes sure that everything's okay and everything is happy because that's the way life's supposed to go. And I want you to know that there are times when we have to deal with consequences because there are consequences in life. But the consequences then lead to conversations, and the conversations are the training opportunities. And see, and I think that Hophni and Phineas were shielded from a lot of those consequences by Eli. 
There were mistakes that they made. There were choices that they made. And, and Eli just swept up after them so that no one else would notice. There were consequences that they never had to deal with because Eli wanted to make sure that they were happy and everything was okay. But the reality is, is that eventually they leave the training phase and start to head into the coaching phase. And it's in the coaching phase when they turn 14, 15, 16 that they start making decisions on their own, A, where the consequences become much bigger, and B, where you're not around anymore. And this is what happens to Hophni and Phinehas, is they start making choices where the consequences, the consequences are grave. You see, one of the, the parts of the life of a priest of Eli, was that when people would bring an offering to the temple, there was a ritual that they would go through. And as they're going through this ritual, what they are to do is there's a part of the ritual where the priest comes and takes a portion of the food that they're offering as a sacrifice to God. The reason the priest comes and takes this portion is that's how the priest survives. There's no, there's no offering, there's no pension for a priest. What a priest does is he waits for people to bring a sacrifice, and then he takes a portion of that sacrifice to feed his family. It's not, un, it's not that different from the way Justin and I are paid today. We, we believe that the way that God ordains it is that you give an offering to the church and that our board sets apart a part of that to pay the salary of Justin and I. And it's a similar concept to what they were doing thousands of years ago in the Old Testament in the temple. The difference is, is that Hophni and Phinehas saw an opportunity, and they saw an opportunity to do things a little bit differently. And it says this in verse 15, it says, but even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if this person said to him, let the fat be burned, and then I would take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no. Hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. And the sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. And Hophni and Phinehas figured out that the best part of the meat, that the best part of the, of the food that was being offered was getting burned up before they ever got to it. And they said, listen, no, 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 no. There's a way for us to take care of business here. There's a way for us to get the choice meat. There's a way for us to have better food and we're going to do it our way. And because in their life they had, never been dealt, dealt, they had never dealt with consequences, because in their life they had never seen the way things end up, all of a sudden, they're struggling. And they're about to pay some serious consequences. See, what happens next, and I encourage you to read this later, but what happens next is that Hophni and Phinehas find out from the Lord that They'll soon be put to death. And they find out that they're, they're going to die because they have to pay the price for treating the Lord's offering with contempt. And all Eli can do is stand from the side because Eli's entered the third phase of parenting, which is coaching. And what happens when you're a coach is all of your practice, all of your training, all of your buildup is shown on the floor or on the field. Everything you've tried to teach, everything you've tried to instill shows when you're not in control anymore. And you know this as if you've ever coached a sport, that all you can do is stand on the side and hope for the best. You can holler, you can shout, but the choices they make out there are the choices that they will make by themselves. And this is what happens in the, in the coaching, parenting, coaching phase of parenting, is that you can, offer, you can offer critiques, you can offer advice, 
But what really matters at that point is what you've instilled in them up to this moment. And all that matters at that point is the training and the work and the preparation that you've put in. You see, it's hard. That's when it's the hardest to let go is when you realize that this is what I've taught you. This is what I've shaped for you. And again, there are times where they make choices that don't reflect you. And the consequences of those choices might be painful to you and to them. But as a parent, it's our job to make sure that up until that point, we've done everything we can not to make them happy, but to shape them towards holiness. Because what happens after the coaching phase is the friend phase. And in the friend phase, you reap the rewards of the hard work that you've put in for a long time. I imagine that for a lot of you, if you're friendly with your parents these days, if I would go back to when you were 10 and tell you that someday you'll call your mom on the phone just because, that someday you'll be a friend, you'll consider your parents a friend and not a nemesis, you'd say, I'm crazy. Because when you're 10, when you're 5, when you're 13, the last thing you think is my parents are my friend. But you find out later as you see that the hard discipline and the, and, the, and the struggles that they went through with you were to shape you into the adult you've become. I hope that's the case for you, and I hope that that's your goal for your children. Not that you're their friend when they're seven. They have plenty of friends. They need a parent. Not that they're your friend when they're 13. They have plenty of friends. They need parents but that you're their friend when they're old enough to look back and say, Mom, Dad, you knew what you were doing. One of the things that I've learned um, recently about parenting and I've tried to kind of see in our lives is what's called, um, the, it's, a, it's an acronym. I don't really like to do these kinds of things, but I think if you're a writer-downer of things, this might be helpful to you, um, but it's called grace parenting. And so when you hear grace parenting, you think, mm-mm, I'm punishing my kids, I'm disciplining my kids. That's not, it's not what we're talking about here. But it's just something to remember and, and to live by as, as you parent your kids, whatever phase of life they're in. The first thing that you remember is that in grace parenting, you need to give your child to God. I think that for a lot of us, one of the major problems with our child is that we're convinced we own them. And that we're convinced that everything they do and everything they say is a direct reflection on whether or not we're doing a good job. But if the first step we take is to remind ourselves that we gave them to God, that God has entrusted our kids to us, but he is the one who has ultimately created and made them and loved them. It changes the way you look at parenting. It changes the way that you see your child. It changes the way you raise your child. The second part of this is to reinforce the voice of God. Now, I want to be clear, like, I don't typically believe that God speaks audibly. I believe that we learn from the voice of God by what he wrote to us in the Bible. And I know that for some of you, it's a daunting task to reinforce the voice of God, because you're like, I'm not sure I know what God's saying in my life. This is one of the reasons that we provide men's Bible study and ladies' Bible study. It's the reason that every week when we stand on the stage, we preach the Bible and what the Bible says in our lives. It's the reason that I, if you ask me, I can flood you with resources of how to, how to read and understand what God's saying in your life. But here's what you need to know. The voice of God is telling your kid, love their neighbor and love their Lord, their God, with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. We can talk more and we can dig further, but we will point you in the right direction to understand how to reinforce the voice of God in your child's life. 
It's an easy place to start by after, after church today, if your kid's downstairs, saying, what did you learn about in kids' land today? Why did you learn about that in kids' land today? The third thing to do is, is adjust their attitude. And adjust their attitude is like, all right, yeah, this is where we start. Like, I want you to focus more on making sure that your child understands this is not about me. This is not about my life. This is about following Jesus. And then, finally, or then the C comes, and it's consistent correction. And this one's hard. It's hard because, because doing the same thing over and over again gets boring. It's hard because it gets exhausting and it gets demanding. It's hard because consistently correcting reminds you that they're not yet there. And last is an empowering example. And this is the one that's on us. We can't be the kind of parent who says, do as I say, not as I do. But an example that empowers them, an example that shows them this is the way we go. I'm going to brag um, on my kids for a minute, and I guess it's going to in, in turn sound like I'm bragging on myself, but y'all know well enough to know that's not the case. Um, yesterday, we were at the store, and there was a big line at the checkout, and you know how kids get when they're in line at the checkout, and it gets a little crazy? Um, and it was a little crazy, and I was at, we were at our wit's end, like, just get these kids in the car, get them strapped down, and maybe we'll just drive around for a little while. But the lady in front of us was getting ready to check out, and one of the, the things she was carrying fell out of her hand and onto the floor. And I got ready to say, hey, pick that up for her. And by the time I got the word hey out of my mouth, Abel was already on his knee on the floor, picking up what she had dropped and putting it back on the counter for her. And that's because he's being raised by his mother, and first of all. But I, I was, I almost like teared up in the middle of the store. And I'd like to think that it's because for four years, Abel has seen his mom and dad help other people. I'd like to think that it's because for four years, Abel has seen us tell him and show him how to serve people when they have a need. I don't know. I mean, he probably just wanted to pick the thing up. But I have to believe in my heart that there was an empowering example that he saw in his mom and his dad because all we try to do is reflect who God the Father is in our lives to him. And I don't tell you that to brag. I can tell you a thousand stories about how messed up things have been too. But I tell you that to remind you of this, is that no matter how old your kids are, no matter how difficult their life has been, there's an opportunity for grace. There's an opportunity for the kind of grace that God promises us. The kind of grace that he promises us is the grace that removes our mistakes, the grace that blots out the sins that we've committed, the grace that says, I know you've fallen short, I know you weren't good enough, I know you didn't do everything right, but there is grace. And that grace that's offered to us is the grace of Jesus. The forgiveness for the mistakes that we've made, the forgiveness for the times we haven't gotten it right, and the reminder that Jesus makes it right. And so here's what I say to you as a parent. Number one, you've made mistakes. We've made mistakes. Our parents made mistakes. Our grandparents made mistakes. Those mistakes have been forgiven by Jesus. And number two, your kids will make mistakes. 
And there will be times where you have to punish them. There will be times where there will be consequences they have to deal with. But there's also opportunities in those moments to remind them that Jesus has covered over all our mistakes if we allow him. And so it's here in this moment that I want you to take, that, take the bread and take the cup when it's passed and remind yourself that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was poured out for you to have those mistakes erased.